Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Dr. D'Angelo is an affiliate associate professor of education at the University of Washington. She has numerous publications and books, all centered on social and racial justice. In 2011, she coined the term white fragility in an academic article, which has influenced the international dialogue on race. Her book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, was released in June of 2018 and debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, where it remained for over three years and has been translated into 10 languages. Her follow-up book, Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm, was released this past June. In addition to her academic work, Dr. D'Angela has been a consultant and educator for over 20 years on issues of racial and social justice. Robin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I guess I should say welcome back. So since we did a bit of an intro and overview of who you are and how you came to sort of the work on our previous podcast, perhaps we could jump in sort of more um, contemporary. And let's start with the book that you wrote last year, Nice Racism. And what is it about and how does it differ from White Fragility? Yeah, we know I make a very provocative claim in White Fragility, and that is that I think that progressive white people actually cause the most daily harm across race. And I get asked about that a lot. And so I really wanted to focus on that question and in a way take the gloves off. I mean, when I wrote White Fragility, I couldn't have dreamed that it would be as accessible and popular as it was. And so I was writing kind of in general terms to a very wide audience. But there is this, you know, I have a specialty in terms of audience and that is, you know, white progressives. And I felt like I could be a little, be, be a little bit more myself, let my personality and voice come through, not be quite so clinical, if you will. I mean, the reason I wrote White Fragility was that the academic article was so helpful for people, but it is an academic article and it's an academic speak. And while I know how to do that and I am trained to do that, it's not really my preferred mode. So White Fragility was meant to be more accessible, but it still wasn't quite fully my voice. So nice racism allowed me to be more of myself and to talk specifically to my people. You know, I mean, I identify as a white progressive and most of the kinds of people that are going to ask me to come in and do some kind of work with them or show up voluntarily at something I'm doing are also white progressives. A little bit more nowadays, you're going to get somebody who is not and wants to record me and, you know, do something problematic with a soundbite. And, you know, there are lots of people now that are not showing up in good faith. But typically, my experience is with my people. So that's nice racism was really like, so, you know, we are not white nationalists. I'm really clear about that. And I used to say, I mean, I do, I always want to push white people further than they kind of expect to go. And then even if they settle back a little bit, they still settle back a little bit, you know, further out there. And so I used to say that Donald Trump is no more racist than I am. And people would be like, what? (laughs) And the point I was trying to make is there's nothing that comes out of his mouth I don't recognize. 
There's nothing that's unfamiliar. I know exactly what he's talking about. I know what tropes he's picking up because I swim in the same water that he does. And while he's older than me, he's not that much older than me. And, you know, there is a difference, of course, between us. And that is I have devoted my life to challenging that racism. And he looks to me like he amplifies it. And so if we set Donald Trump up as the racist, then the average well-meaning white progressive is going to distance themselves. And that's a really, really common pattern for us. Now I say, you know, I'm not Donald Trump. I'm certainly not a white nationalist, but I do swim in this water. And I have absorbed racist ideology like everybody else. So what does my racism look like? Again, it doesn't look like that, but it looks like something. When people of color who live and work in mostly white environments, dealing with white, nice progressives like us, you know, the theme I hear over and over is is how exhausting it is to be around us. So what are we doing? What do our forms look like? And that's what nice racism is meant to reveal. Yeah. And give folks an example of some of the, you know, couple things that really stand out as things that white progressives do that we can work on. Yeah. Well, there's a, probably the heart of the book is a pretty dense chapter on what I call the moves of white progressives, the kinds of things we say and do in particular contexts, and then how that actually functions. And one of the moves we make very commonly is what I call credentialing. And that's all of the ways that we try to telegraph very quickly that we're not racist. (laughs) So credentialing looks like making sure, you know, everybody knows that I'm married to a black man. I'm not actually, but I'm just, you know, using that as an example. All of the people I'm going to name that I know that are people of color how much traveling I've done, you know, the evidence we offer up that is intended, whether we're really consciously aware of it or not, but it's intended to establish that we are not racist, that we are different. And it's not convincing (laughs) to people who understand systemic racism. What we've actually just telegraphed is we we don't understand systemic racism. We're not particularly self-aware. And we're probably, therefore, not going to be very open if anybody challenges us on the evidence we just offered. So credentialing is a really common move, bringing up our own forms of oppression, what those of us in the field call channel changing, right? Like, well, yes, but the real oppression is class. And if we deal with class, and actually, I I imagine you you would have a lot to say about that, given your work. But if we address class, well, all the other oppressions will disappear, and I would challenge that. So the question I offer, is it true? You know, what should we center in order? Is it true that if we center class, we'll abolish all other oppressions? The question I would offer is, okay, in this moment, in this conversation, how does it function when you move us over to class? And I would argue that it functions to take race off the table. There's a reason that white people want to take race off the table, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. And it's certainly silencing to any person of color who thinks even within our anti-capitalist movements, we need to talk about racism because it's at play in those movements. You've just pretty much silenced that conversation, whether you are aware of it or not. And I'd like to assume you'd want to be aware of that. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know, one thing that's shifted in me that I think over the past couple of years, I would say in the 
sort of early, I'm still obviously very early in my journey, I'd say the earliest part of my journey, I would sort of read something like White Fragility or, you know, other books like When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Cullors or any of the books by Ibram X. Kendi. And it would just create this like fury towards shame towards myself and other fury towards other white people for sort of like not getting it. And, you know, it felt good for a long time to really like call out like other white people like you're not getting it and we're not getting it and we're not getting it. And I just, I realized <laughs> it, it wasn't actually changing anything. Like it wasn't changing anyone's mind by being furious and like having a lot of self shame. And I've over the past 18 months, I've started to shift towards a mindset of how do I build on the one or two things that I share with somebody rather than the five things that I'm like, you're doing this and this and this wrong. And it, it's actually way harder. I've realized to, to do that. It's a lot easier to, to write off all white people as being racist. <laughs> it's much harder to actually allow there to be nuance and have some empathy. And I'm curious, how do you balance that tension of like letting white people sort of learn and like letting us sort of like grapple with this versus calling out what needs to be called out? How do you balance that? Well, first, we kind of have to pull out and be very clear that there's no like perfect answer. There's no way we could possibly get it right by everybody. And that part of this is making those mistakes, falling into it and learning and growing rather than using that as your reason why, forget it, I'm not doing this anymore. So that's my big disclaimer. But we can go back again to, so how does it function? And while I do think I hopefully call white people in rather than out, I do name what's problematic about these moves, but I also break it down and help, I hope, help us see, because I believe if, if I understand how that's functioning, oh, well, I don't want to do that. If I'm just told I'm wrong or bad, that's not useful. But if somebody walks me through, this is what happens when you do that. Oh, okay, that makes sense to me. And now I'm actually getting a, a deeper kind of critical analysis. So when you said you just wanted to like dismiss all white people, you know, so how does that function, right? If you, as a white man, dismiss white people and just say, you know, we're never going to get it, that they're never going to get it. Well, that's not useful to people of color, right? Because who's then left to deal with them? And it also then makes you the special one, the good one, which also isn't useful because that interferes with our sense of humility. So we kind of can't give up on one another, even though it's hard. And to be really honest, I mean, I'm not out there in front of white nationalists. I mean, there are a group of people that I'm, I'm not feeling particularly confident that I'm the right messenger for. But in general, right, the average white person, it's just not useful for us to give up on them. I know how I would feel. If the topic was sexism and a man just said, oh, forget it, all men are just sexist and they're always going to be sexist and I'm done with them, I'd be like, uh, 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 you know, please, you know, I need you. There's a particular way that I can talk to men and share my experience that, you know, is important, but there's a way that you can talk to them that I can't. And it's also worth looking at why does it feel good to do that? Like, what is the cultural capital that I gain? when I dismiss other white people as clueless and not getting it. And that, I think, goes a little bit to the hubris, right? And the lack of humility and getting to be the special one, which, of course, is a classic hallmark of whiteness, <laughs> individualism. 
And then lastly, I was taking notes as you said, there was so much richness in what you were saying. And I'm thinking about Loretta Ross. Do you know who Loretta Ross is? She's a professor at Smith College. She's a black woman. She wrote a really, really powerful essay in the New York Times about call out culture. And she makes a distinction that's been really helpful for me as someone who gets called out a lot. (laughs) Anyone who is visible on race is going to get it from all sides. You can get an email that says, you changed my life, thank you. And then an email that says, you're terrible and horrible, go away. (laughs) But she says we need to distinguish between an adversary and a problematic ally. Right. Mm-hmm. So an adversary is truly your enemy. And I would say white nationalists are truly my enemy in the sense that they want to destroy me, destroy us. A problematic ally is somebody who means well, who's trying, who basically has a handle on the concept, but fell into it, as of course we will. I mean, if you understand systemic racism, you understand that none of us are, can be outside of it. So why do we just smash people? When they reveal that they have a pattern based on their conditioning into racist ideology, how about we start with, oh, you just, you know, stepped into that pattern. Here's how you did that and how it functioned. And then see if they're open and willing to say, oh, thank you. Now I see that versus how dare you. And, you know, and then maybe you can dismiss them with a little more integrity. But if if you haven't given them that chance, it's like we're proceeding from this assumption that there's a moment in which we just get it and we never are problematic again. And so if we are, we're terrible and need to be cast out. Yeah. And it also, I would add that when doing that, it also sort of lacks the context and history of why, like white people are not sort of like inherently or like the original sin of like whiteness is like you're just born and then you're automatically this way. It's like there's looking at how capitalism has like, you know, and wealthy folks have pitted black and brown and white people against each other in order to gain power. And so white folks not understanding racism and thinking the way we think is also like a condition of, yeah, like hundreds of years of conditioning us to think this way. So it's hard to it's like having that reaction also doesn't take into account that we are part of a system that's been set up to hurt us too. It's not just, you know. I'm curious, you know, speaking of this sort of how do you balance like call in, call out, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown had this quotation that I really liked where she said, you know, we often think of someone like as a white progressive, you might think of someone as someone in prison and we want to have an abolitionist mindset towards a person in prison who maybe was convicted of a drug offense or, you know, a lot of white progressives are mad about the criminal justice system, right? But we don't have that same abolitionist mindset towards people who are fallible and like make mistakes on things like being anti-racist. It's like we're much more willing to just write off somebody as being like if you're a white person who doesn't understand racism, we're going to like write you off. But if you're a black man in prison convicted of a crime, we're like way more willing to be like have an abolitionist mindset. I'm curious, what comes up for you around that idea? I'm thinking again about how it functions. And I have to be very careful here because in service of accountability, of course, as someone who's very visible and white on this topic, I'm going to get feedback. 
And that's one of the challenges. How do you sort it out? You know, particularly when it's complete opposites, right? And so there comes a time and place where you just have to get centered and grounded, be clear that you're in your integrity. But I'm thinking about somebody who is new to the work and really excited and open to it. And then they watched a particular vilification that I was getting on some, I would just say fairly far left website, you know, and with lots of followers. And it it was pretty intense vilification. And this person was just like, pretty freaked out about it. Like, oh my God, like, where is the space for me? If that's happening to you, and, you know, we can see that you have a, well, one of the things that happens to me is people seem to think I just came out of nowhere, you know, (laughs) as an opportunist when if you look at my resume, the only thing I've ever written about for the last 25 years is social and racial justice, right? But people just react to you the moment they are aware of you as if you came from nowhere. But if that's happening to you with your record and your history, like, I'm not doing this, I'm too scared. And so they withdraw and clam up and go silent and all of those frustrating behaviors. Um, so, you know, what are we modeling also? And again, there's a difference between somebody who's clumsy and someone who's really mean-spirited and, you know, playing the devil's advocate and, you know, out to get you. Yeah, I've heard somebody describe it as difference between misinformation, which is just reciting things you don't actually know the true, you're just sort of like, but then disinformation, which is like, you know that it's wrong and you're actually seeding debate. So it's like more intentional. Yeah. I just think of that as kind of like in bad faith. I get questions sometimes and I'm like, that's not an open question. You know, that's a gotcha question. And I'm willing to answer basically, go ahead, you know, ask me something difficult, but ask me respectfully and in good faith, right? Yeah. One of the other things, Resma Minikim, who I know you know very well, has written about this concept of dirty pain and clean pain. And I was thinking about this connection. It's almost something similar to what I've trying to rationalize is like dirty power and clean power. So white folks, we often take up space and exert our control by harnessing like the dirty power, you know, it's like white supremacy, white nationalism. And it feels like at the same time, white folks like me who are committed to collective liberation, we have this deeply uneasy relationship to power because it's like, oh, I I don't want it. I I, like, I know it's bad, but it, it seems like there's actually some nuance there of like white people progressive white folks need to actually hold space in like a soulful, grounded, like authentic power that like holds a vision of collective liberation for, you know, centering black and brown voices, but also requires us to show up with like clean power. Like, I'm curious, how do you, how do white folks show up with like clean power? Because it feels like power is so tricky. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the first thought I have about power is often when white people hear that word or even privilege, but let's use power. There's an expectation that I'm going to feel powerful and most people don't feel powerful. So I think about it as the absence of struggle in this area of life that has deep struggles for somebody else. So it's kind of a non-issue for you. And that is a form of power. So think about it in that way, rather than I'm feeling puffed up and tall. Okay, so so I just wanted to say that. And since you brought up power, there's another thought I have that I like to share, which is that silence from a position of power is a power move. Okay, so I'll let that just sit for a second. 
because sometimes we think the answer is I won't take up any space. But how that can function is I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to take any risks and I'm not going to show myself. And so when you are in a room, let's say you're in a, a multiracial space and the conversation is getting difficult and it's about racism and there's a, a white man in the room who's not saying a word because there's a history of harm. The assumption is not that you're supportive. You know, the assumption is hostility. If I'm in a room filled with men and the topic is sexism and they're all just quiet, I am not assuming they're supportive. Absolutely. In fact, I'm unnerved and I'm like, okay, this is not going well at all unless they show me different. And so sometimes we think, oh, I won't take up any space. You know, and this is the challenge of the work. When do I take up space? How do I take up space? Any default, right? Well, I won't at all. Well, that's a default, right? I will just default to silence. You're not thinking strategically. So you're not thinking, okay, in this moment, I'm noticing that five white people in a row just spoke up. Oh man, I know what I have to say. So smart <laughs> and so good, but yeah, maybe not right now. Or, oh, that person just really was vulnerable. This person of color just shared that, just opened themselves a little bit of silence, but then how do I affirm and acknowledge what they just gave, right? And those are calls, again, we're not going to get right by everybody, but those are the calls we should be trying to make rather than default. And it reminds me of a story that I share in Nice Racism about being in a training once. And there was an exercise, you, you've probably done these exercises where you come up with a list of privileges that you take for granted and different groups are working on different lists. And so this white group went to read out their list, but did all this prefacing of like, you know, we don't really want these privileges and we can't help it, but, you know, and finally this black man just said, you know what, <laughs> this is like being at a banquet and there's this table and it's just laden with the most beautiful, delicious foods. And you're all sitting at the table and you're eating the food, but you've got your head down and you're kind of covering your mouth and you're kind of like, you know, it's not really that good. It's like, we know you're eating the food. We know that it's good. We don't want you to not have the food. <laughs> we don't want you to downplay the food. We want you to figure out how to make space for us at that table. So using your position and your privilege in that way, rather than making yourself appear small, which is just not useful. Absolutely. I'm curious if you have any firmly held beliefs that you've changed in the last 18 to 24 months? And if you could speak to some of those. I'm not even sure if I don't believe this anymore, but that I don't see it as strategic anymore. So for as long as I've been doing this work, I would say all white people are racist. <laughs> I don't typically walk into a room and lead with that. But after a few hours, most people in the room can hear it and understand what I mean by it. But I don't really think it's strategic anymore. So what I mean by that is if you grant, this is, you know, we're talking to hopefully a progressive audience who already grants that systemic racism exists. So if you grant that, then you understand that you're in that system, that you've absorbed it. Ibram X. Kindi, I love when he says, we may not be the producers of racist ideology, but we've all been the consumers, right? We all have this. And that's what I mean when I say 
all white people are racist. We have been conditioned into a racist worldview, racist ideology, racist assumptions, patterns, behaviors, and they all collectively function to uphold racism. All of our niceness, right? All of our credentials hasn't ended racism. So that's what I mean when I say that. But I think it may be more strategic to say the way that Jay Smooth says, that behavior you're doing is upholding racism and kind of move it away from you are racist and just talk about the behavior. I kind of regret in a way, I mean, it's hard to go backwards because I'm where I am and my work has been useful to lots of people, but I'm not going to say it that way anymore. <laughs> Does yeah, it make sense to, to you? Absolutely. I used to believe that you always said white supremacy. You never said even racism because if white people were uncomfortable with the word white supremacy from the start, they were just being fragile. And I was like, we need to say this. And I'm like, well, yes, <laughs> but let's like, again, meeting people where they're at and bringing them into the conversation. I'm not going to like necessarily walk into the room and say like, you're all like basically white supremacy. We're all victims of white supremacy. It, it just... Yeah, it can get people, it's like using a little bit of psychology to bring people in better, I think, to the work. To the yeah. Work. And this is, you know, one of the many, many like tensions, right? Like what is strategic and what is coddling, right? And we'll draw those lines in different places. So I have tended to draw the line further towards not coddling in my mind. And so when people have raised their hands, a white person raises their hands and says, why do you have to say white supremacy? (laughs) I don't know if you ever heard anybody say that, but I have tended to say it's not on those of us who are engaged and educated on this work to change our language. It's on you to ask yourself, huh, all these people who are engaged and educated are using this language. So what am I missing? How are they using it that must be different than I think they're using it? And, you know, it's on me to gain that knowledge. It's not on them to change their language to accommodate where I am. (laughs) I've come out and said that to people, right? It's like, you really need to figure out why we're using this language or ask us why rather than tell us don't use that language. Now, would I do that today? Probably still. So there are certain ones I won't give away, but I explain what I mean when I say white supremacy the first time I use it, right? So I try to be proactive in that way by saying, now I understand that this often means this and that's what it used to mean to me. This is what I mean and so on. Yeah. And we had talked earlier about this concept of shame around whiteness. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I actually have a chapter in Nice Racism that's called Let's Talk About Shame. (laughs) And shame and guilt are not the same, but they do get used somewhat interchangeably. You know, those two places are a common place that people would go. I feel like white progressives are more likely to say shame And maybe more mainstream white people are are more likely to say guilt. So if you watch this anti-CRT movement, you know, I won't feel guilty. You want me to feel guilty. You know, John McWhorter. Do you know who John McWhorter is? He's a black man who works hard for the cause of challenging anti-racism. You know, he had an op-ed in the New York Times, you know, let's not make white people feel guilty. He's really critiqued me as if I desire white people to feel guilty. And it's funny to me because I am so impatient with white guilt. 
you know, I mean, might even be seen as kind of mean about it, right? I just don't have any patience for it. So again, white progressives tend to use shame more middle of the road or to the right will use guilt. And there's an exercise I do in my sessions. It comes out of me noticing the pattern of how often that comes up. So when when there's a narrative that comes up really commonly with white people, for me, that's actually a red flag. Oh, so I wonder how that's functioning, right? I don't tend to say, oh, it must be a real thing because so many white people say it. No, I say that must be functioning in a particular way because so many white people say it. So I'll ask people in my sessions to turn to the person next to them and just on a daily basis, roughly, how often do you feel racial shame or guilt? What do you think? If white people are being honest, what do you think those percentages look like? Well, I guess if you are a white progressive, you probably feel it more. (laughs) Maybe like 50 to 70% of the day. I don't know. Well, I think if you're a white progressive, you feel it whenever you're thinking or engaging around race. And even white progressives, I believe, go through most of our day not thinking about it at all because we still tend to live mostly white lives, work in mostly segregated spaces. And so, yeah, when we're reading the New York Times and we see some op-ed, right? But I don't really think, I think 50 or 70 is really high. A white person who's in a primary partnership with a person of color or has children of color would probably be higher. I'm going to just be honest with you. If you asked me, I'd be like, 5%, 2%, there are days when I don't feel it at all because I'm not thinking about it because I don't have to think about it. If I don't set up a situation in which I would be thinking about it, I won't be. You know what I mean? Like most white people have to set something up in order for them to be thinking about it. So then, you know, and most people's numbers are, are pretty low like that. All right. So then why is this such an immediate narrative? What does it do for us to go there? And I think that it absolves us, right? Well, first of all, we're not very useful when we're mired in shame or guilt. If, and I'm going to go back to sexism again, because, you know, it's just, it's an entry point for me. So if I'm trying to talk to you about sexism in the movement, and you're just like, oh, I just feel so bad. You know, I would just be, oh my God, can you see it? I'd be just like, that's not useful to me. I need you to like talk to people, you know, don't go small on me now (laughs) or use your feeling bad to motivate you. But it is often presented as, and so I can't move forward, right? It's a stumbling block. It's not shared as it's so motivating for me. And I figured out that the antidote to shame and guilt is action. That's not how it's shared. (laughs) It's shared like, I don't know what to do. I feel so bad. So that's another red flag to me that it's functioning in a way to excuse. But it also functions in a way to regain the moral high ground. I am showing you how good I am by showing you how bad I feel about this thing. And so I'm really good. Does that make sense? And Sarah Ahmed is a scholar of color who writes powerfully about this. So I want to give credit to how her influence on my thinking about it. So in a way, it's dirty pain, as Resma calls it. So it's normal and natural, but what do we do with it? And that's what I would offer. How is it functioning for you? And if it's excusing you or miring you down, then you have to challenge it. And most of us feel guilty about something because we haven't repaired it, right? So reparative action in some kind of way. 
I mean, it depends on is this an interpersonal interaction you feel bad about or is this like the society? What's that one thing I can do where I can feel somewhat in my integrity, but withdrawing? And that's how I often see it used as, as a reason to just withdraw and give up. Yeah, as, as Resmus has said, you know, you need to get your reps in. It's like going to the gym and expecting to bench press like 200 pounds like right away and being like, oh, I can't do it. It's like, well, you got to start at five pounds. <laughs> yeah. And you would probably say that clean pain is pain that motivates you and that you're using constructively. Yes. You know, one of the things he touched on it is this idea of repair. And I think, uh, you know, as a white progressive person, so much of my understanding of racism is basically contained from my chin to the top of my head. You know, it's my intellectual understanding of, and I'm curious, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do is what is this like somatic, and Resma writes about this in my grandmother's hands, but like, what is the somatic, what is the trauma that we're holding as white people? And how do we let that out? In addition to just like learning about how maybe our day-to-day actions may or may not affect people of color. Like, what are like the rituals for grief and trauma and like somatic experience? I'm curious, do you see that work happening more? Or do you do any of that work to sort of get below the sort of intellectual understanding of racism? I'm not sure we can if we aren't in some kind of authentic relationship because it's the abstractness. So, so one, from an early age, I mean, basically, I would argue – while we're not born racist, we are born immediately into racist water. And in fact, the water of racism is shaping even how, where we're born <laughs> and the outcome of our birth, right? So I may be a little bit different there. A lot of people are like, you know, we're separate from racism. I'm like, well, my psychosocial development was inculcated in racist water, right? I came to my so-called personality in the context of racist society. So it's pretty deep in there, right? And part of what that is, is a lack of seeing any inherent value in being in relationship with people of color. I don't think that's a hard message to access. Once you access it, for me, there's kind of an emotional climax to my talks and that's it for me because I can remember the moment it hit me Oh my God, I have been conditioned to feel no loss whatsoever, that I could go cradle to grave with no authentic relationships with people of color and black people in particular and see no loss to me. So, I mean, that's not too far a step from because I don't see their humanity. And since I don't have any relationships, although my head is filled with anti-blackness from everything else I've absorbed, I'm not going to feel that loss. In fact, I mean, think about trying to challenge a loss that has been set up as how you gain value and status. Like that's deep, right? The whiter my school, the more status it has. The whiter my neighborhood, the more status it has. (laughs) So not only is there not loss, there's value. It's very deep. Now that I'm not trying to immobilize people by making them feel overwhelmed, but that's the place we have to go into and look at and let ourselves feel. I'm not sure we can fully do that if we don't somewhere have some kind of love (laughs) across race. And this is where now, because it gets a little tricky, that doesn't mean we just go grab somebody like, oh my God, there's this one black guy at work and I've got to get him. (laughs) Because that's really exploitative and using him. It might mean I have to 
go out of my comfort zone, because most middle-class white people, the people of color that come into their orbit, come into their orbit. They don't go out of their orbit, right? They don't go out of their neighborhood or their school system or their comfort zone or their places of worship, but they get excited when somebody from the outside, a person of color, comes into that space. And now they can say, oh, our church is really diverse, right? Our school is really diverse. But they will tend to be people of a shared class. So this is all making sense. So there's more comfort there. So yeah, it may mean discomfort and inconvenience and that you do go across town to join a congregation that would enable you to build those relationships. You know, we're willing to go across town to get our kid in a school that we think is quote unquote better. Are we willing to go across town to join groups or processes that would enable us to build relationships across race? Absolutely. And like you, I think you said that desire is never going to be motivated by shame. It's going to be motivated by an understanding that we are actually better and like this is more it's collectively better for me and other folks to do this. It's not like I should because I'm feeling bad about myself and how I'm raising my kids or something. Yeah. I mean, we're not that attractive. You know, if I'm all mired in shame, I'm not really going to be that attractive to somebody, especially across race, because they're already, it's already rife with a history. And generally that history is being, for people of color, is being let down by white people who they thought were closer to them and so forth, right? And so this is that distinction between shame and humility, humiliation and humility. Those are not the same thing. So how do we, you know, stand firm and clear, not be small and shameful, but do that with some humility? And, you know, (laughs) this is the work and none of it is easy. Yes. Do you do any, you know, you mentioned a lot of white folks have no connection with folks of color, which I definitely see and believe. And I also think a lot of white folks don't have a lot of connection to ancestry and ancestral healing practices. I'm curious, do you engage with any ancestral practices or ancestral connection work at all to sort of, you know, I've just noticed like Adrian Marie Brown and others have often said like, we need this connection to like who we are and where we come from. And I'm curious if that comes into your work at all. You know, I don't. I know that for as long as I've been in this work, there's been different approaches. And one of them is that white people have to get in touch with their ethnic roots and the cultures they gave up in order to be white. And while that may be a really important process for many white people, it doesn't resonate for me. I think until we reach a place that is less racist, I worry that it functions as a way to not have to own our whiteness. And let's just go back to our ethnic identities. I think first we have to look at and be really honest, what did we gain by giving that up and go deeply there? For me, I tend to go for what's the hardest thing to do, right? It's really easy for me to focus on my own oppression. I've done that my whole life. I've got plenty of thinking (laughs) and plenty of analysis on where I've been oppressed, right? And so those approaches that say, first you have to heal your own And I I get it, but again, it's not hard for me to access those places. I want to go, what is hard? Looking at my internalized superiority. That is not easy. (laughs) So maybe as long as that's being done simultaneously, 
right? Because we do need to heal those places that make us show up in not good condition. And I'm sure you've seen white people in the work that are running their own distress and their own hurt and wounding in those settings, and it's interfering with the work. So yes, of course, on one level, but notice how as soon as we just move there, we're now self-focused again. I want to see it also, you're owning that you're not facing oppression in this area, and how has that shaped how you experience the oppression you do face? I need to see that too. I'm curious, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Oh, that's such a good question. And you would think I'd have an immediate answer. I could hear the ones I don't want them to ask, like, what do you do in your free time? Because if I say what I do, which is so close for my dog and my dog's friends, <laughs> that look like a crazy lady. Uh, and I need to be careful because I know crazy is not great language, mm. but probably just what do you wish white people understood? Just like, what do you want them to take away? So now you're going to want me to answer. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you, you found it. You sniffed it out. Just to change the question from if you've been shaped by this, stop kind of going to all the ways that show you weren't really shaped by this, or you were shaped less by this because X, Y, and Z, and change the question from if to how were you shaped by this? And how did it shape whatever you experienced of X, Y, and Z that you're so eager that we all know about you? Okay, great. You experienced X. How did being white shape how you experienced X? I just think that's a fruitful and important question and kind of challenges the credentialing. And I might think of something later, but that's what came to my mind. Sure. <laughs> okay, last two questions here. So first, what do you need right now and how can the listeners help you grow this next economy or this future vision that we're hoping to co-create? What a sweet question. Oh, see, that's something no one ever asks me. What do I need? <laughs> that's really a beautiful question. Thank you, Ryan. I think I need that generosity, that calling in versus calling out. So often, like says, I'm giving a three-hour presentation on racism by myself as a white person. You know, how could I possibly get that right for three hours, but I get it pretty darn right? And then someone will come up with, aha, in the last five minutes, like maybe it took them that long, you said this, and then that's all I'm going to hear. And so, yes, you can give me that feedback, but could you also say what was valuable? Like, how do we support one another in those ways? Again, a problematic ally is someone we're not giving up on, we're not seeking to shame, that we seriously want them to learn and grow. So how might we approach somebody that we wanted to learn and grow versus how would we approach somebody that we wanted? And why do we want to punish them? What's that about? You know, there are black people who critique me and there are black people who support my work, right? They both exist, trust me. And you can go online and read things, you will see both. So it isn't that we dismiss the ones that critique me, but I do think it's worth white people asking, why have you gone 100% over with the ones that critique me, right? If you're saying, well, black people say this, you know, black people say she's bad. Well, black people sometimes also say she's good. So What's in it for you not to be able to hold that tension and see her as a problematic ally as opposed to an adversary? You know, I mean, as someone who challenges whiteness, I certainly find myself wondering, well, what's in it for you to cast me out completely and to use your reasoning for that as these people said so? 
because these people said so something else too. What kind of righteousness does that give you? I'll get emails from people <laughs> and here's what I say to myself. Why are you approaching me with the assumption that I'm an asshole? Why don't you find out if I'm an asshole? <laughs> So they'll just come at me, you know, you better donate your, you know, and I'd be like, why would you assume I don't donate? In fact, there's a tab on the very website you wrote me on <laughs> that says accountability where you could find out what I donate. And it may not be enough for you, but how about you also share what you donate? So, you know, <laughs> anyway, I want to be careful here because I don't want it to be too much about me. But if that transfers to all of us, like how do we hold each other? And of course there is a line we have to draw. Like, I'm sorry, but you know, Stephen Miller, uh-uh, no, right? There are times when we just say no, but there are lots of times when we say both end. Yes. Well, maybe last question here. How can we learn more about your work if you want to plug any upcoming events or? or oh yeah, actually yeah. I am for the first time going to do an online class. You know, generally I, you know, wait and somebody invites me to come. And then if you were in that community or at that workplace, then you're, you know, have the opportunity. But now I'm going to do a virtual online class that would be accessible to anybody anywhere. And I think we're going to post it today. I think we finally finished. So if you go to my website, you'll see that. That would be wonderful. And if it isn't something you could take or have interest in taking, I, I would very much appreciate if people would circulate that on their networks. And so I will make sure you get the link because you, yes. you probably have a pretty wide network. I'm also going to be doing an online virtual class with Leticia Nieto. Uh, she's a professor of counseling and education at Evergreen. She's a woman of color. She wrote a really fantastic book called Beyond Empowerment. And she and I will be a, a cross-racial team doing a six-week class. And she's more, how do I say it, artistic than I am. And so it's going to be called The Poetics of anti-racism and there'll be poetry and you know, I'll hold a little bit more uh, <laughs> non-poetic side, but she sings and she's just has beautiful artistry she'll bring to that course. That will be posted too and will be on my website. You'll be able to see a link to great, it. Great. Do you know the dates offhand? My course will begin on April 19th and it'll be every other week through July 28th. So it will be on Tuesday evenings at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m., so two hours every other week. And while you're not required, you know, sometimes it's like if you have to make a commitment, if you've gone to some Erasmus courses, you do need to make a commitment. This one, you wouldn't be required to come to every class. I mean, you know, you have to pay for the series. That gets way too complicated. But I wouldn't say you can't come if you're going to miss one here or there because scheduling's hard. <laughs> yeah. And it's at robindangelo.com, yes. right? We also are releasing this summer a young adult version of White Fragility. It was co-adapted by an interracial team. So it's very inclusive of all kids. So that's very exciting. Not so exciting that there will be school districts where it is banned. <laughs> well, that's a whole nother conversation we could be having. And also, I'm a very big believer in white affinity groups or white caucus groups, white Awareness groups, whatever you call them, I think your listeners may know what they are, where we get together just to do the work that's specific to us as white people. And yet there really is no handbook or, you know, there are some short articles or guides. So I've also just finished co-writing the facilitator's handbook for leading white racial affinity groups. Oh, and it's full great. of prompts and discussions and 
common patterns you encounter, how those patterns are functioning, and what are some strategies you can do to interrupt those patterns. So I'm very excited about that. And the handbook should come out, I think, this summer. It'll be announced on my website. Well, thank you so much, Robin. I must say, I'm really grateful that you are continuing to be a problematic ally. (laughs) It's sort of like mild praise, (laughs) but it's actually very deep praise because I think that, yeah, the blowback that you receive, you know, many people would have bowed out by now. And so I just want to thank you for staying with it. Thank you. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.